You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My administration would not be one of smooth waters and halcyon skies. That had to be an understatement from the new president, Rutherford B. Hayes. Hayes was actually sworn in on a Sunday, which was not a very common thing to do. His presidency begins in this weird quirk where they're so worried that on March 4th was a Sunday that Tilden might try something and get someone to swear him in or something like that. Of course, he has no plans of doing this. They think that they have him sworn in as president and then do the official inauguration on a Monday. This all according to Harper's. The inaugural ceremonies held in Washington at the 5th of March were brilliant and imposing, despite the cloudy skies and occasional light flurries of snow. Fortunately, there was no wind, and the air was not cold enough to keep many people within doors. Consequently, the streets were thronged with eager sightseers, and many of the capital came for a glimpse of the new president. The ceremonies of the inaugural, except the military display, are marked by a severe simplicity and even plainness. The foreign diplomatic corps appear in gorgeous uniforms and glittering decorations, but not a bit of gold lace, not a badge or decoration of any kind distinguished any one of our own civil officers. Within the military, it was, of course, different. There were nearly as many men in the military organizations as ever marched down the avenue together, except in the days of the war. Early in the morning, crowds of people lined the avenue, seizing upon the most eligible places from which to witness it. The avenue in front of the presidential mansion was a point where a vast crowd gathered and almost completely blocked the way. Of course, and remember I'm reading Harper's Weekly here, Colored people insisted on their rights, and they composed fully half of the throng. Everybody pressed towards the gates of the White House grounds. Everybody stooped on tiptoe, straining their necks to see over their heads of the people in front. They could only see in the distance the heads of a small band of mounted police. At last the crowd began to fall back as the police advanced, opening a wide passage in the middle of the avenue, and the procession, headed by a band of music, advanced slowly, while the air was rent with enthusiastic cheers for the new president, who occupied a carriage which ex-president Grant and Senator Morrill, chairman of the Senate Program of Arrangements. Following it came carriages containing the vice president, secretary of the treasury, and Senator McCreary, the heads of the departments, and other distinguished persons. The presidential party was placed immediately behind the Washington Light Guards and in front of a battery of light artillery, and in this order drove down the avenue towards the Capitol. As they proceeded, Mr. Hayes and General Grant were received with the utmost enthusiasm. People crowded upon the carriage at different points to such an extent as to interfere with the progress. The space in front of the Capitol was also packed with spectators. At least 30,000 people were gathered there, waiting for the approach of the procession. Its coming was heralded by hearty shouts of welcome and applause. And when the presidential party entered the building, the popular feeling was manifested by loud and prolonged cheering. When the ceremony of administering the oath of office to Vice President Wheeler was conducted in the Senate chamber, a sketch of which is given by our artist, The doors leading to the platform were thrown open, and a large party of ladies and gentlemen who accompanied Mrs. Hayes came out upon the stand. 
modestly, but with no air of shrinking or timidity, says the correspondent of the Times. The charming wife of the new chief magistrate took the seat assigned to her, and for a few moments received a congratulation showered upon her with a cordiality and freedom from affection, which won all hearts. Soon after came the judges of the Supreme Court in their black robes of office, and following them, the diplomatic corps in bright uniforms and glittering decorations. They were accompanied by a large party of ladies, Madame Antilla, the wife of the Spanish minister, being conspicuous for her beauty and affability. After the foreign ministers, the Supreme Court justices, the members of the Senate and House of Representatives, and other distinguished persons had taken their seats. The President-elect and General Grant appeared arm-in-arm, preceded by the Clerk of the Supreme Court, bearing the Bible upon which the oath of office was to be taken. When the address was concluded, the oath of office was administered to the new President by Chief Justice Waite. A sketch of the scene will be found on our first page. The President then re-entered his carriage. The ringing bells, the firing of cannon, and the cheers of the great multitude greeted him as he passed from the Capitol to the White House. In the evening, the streets of Washington were so thronged with people that it was difficult to move about except with the general mass. All the public buildings and many private houses were beautifully illuminated. Bands were playing, rockets flying, cannon firing. Pennsylvania Avenue from end to end was one sea of light. Across the street in many places, arches of Chinese lanterns were hung. And these, together with the illuminated windows and the brilliant streams of many calcium lights, placed at intervals along the main thoroughfares, turned night into day. An immense torchlight procession ended the ceremonies. The demonstration was under the direction of the Central Republican Committee of the District, and many colored people were among the ranks. The line of march was taken up at City Hall, and there, from columns, passed through Pennsylvania Avenue to the White House from the grounds of which our sketch of the profession procession taken. After passing the President's mansion in review order, the procession proceeded to a number of the principal hotels where prominent senators and others were serenaded. I think it's good to see that because we have this idea that, oh, everything was so boring when there was no television, but I think there are a lot more torchlights and a lot more parades. Plenty of light and spectacle, that's for sure, without having to flick a switch. Rutherford B. Hayes is often a forgotten president, and he's most known for the way that he got in. But I think his presidency was important, and many viewed his presidency as successful. In fact, given the way that he came in with his disputed election with Samuel Tilden, there were some that thought that he wouldn't be that good of a president. But actually, by the time you get to 1880, the Republicans are in a surprise position of actually having a good shot of winning again, which they didn't think would happen. They figured they'd get one more presidency, maybe, and that would be it. But he was perceived as doing a good job. So I think it's important to kind of study some of the events. Hayes' cabinets include staunch liberal Republican William Everts as Secretary of State and a former Confederate as Postmaster General. The nomination of the latter appeases Southern Democrats as part of the Compromise of 1877. So the first event you have after he takes office on the 5th, when he's inaugurated, it's a cabinet meeting on the 20th. Hayes agrees to send a commission to Louisiana to report on the conditions in the southern state. 
On April 10th, troops depart the State House in South Carolina following a meeting at the White House with Daniel Chamberlain and Wade Hampton. Without support, Chamberlain gives in, Hampton becomes governor. April 24th. As in South Carolina, Hayes officially withdraws soldiers from Louisiana. Governor Packard has no choice but to submit, declaring one by one the Republican state governments of the South have been forced to submit to force, fraud, or policy. Hayes' withdrawal of troops from the South marks the end of Reconstruction. June 1st, 1877. With Mexican-Texas border incursions continuing, Hayes sends troops to patrol the nearly lawless Mexican border and cross it if necessary to pursue bandits. Mexican President Diaz protests and sends troops to the border as well. Ultimately, economic concerns motivate both parties to work towards a settlement. June 22nd. Following John Jay's investigation into the New York Custom House, Hayes issues an executive order that forbids the involvement of federal employees in political activities. The president takes such action in the hope that it will curtail corruption. June 16, 1877. Following pay cuts, the first major interstate railroad strike, the Great Strike of 1877, begins on the Baltimore and Ohio B&O line in Camden Junction, Maryland. Additional strikes will follow, lasting a month. Lacking organization, the strikes frequently degenerate into mob activity. Hayes sends federal troops to protect mail and quell the riots that take place in numerous cities, angering many workers. In September 1877, Hayes goes on a tour of the South, pledging reconciliation and solidarity through a policy of pacification. September 6, 1877. Hayes challenges the political power of New York Senator Roscoe Conkling when he announces he will replace Chester A. Arthur, the port collector of the New York Custom House. Conkling, Hayes' opponents for the Republican presidential ticket, in 1876, blocks Hayes' nomination of Theodore Roosevelt Sr. to replace author. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. February 28, 1878. Hayes vetoes the Bland-Allison Act, which was advocated by farmers and debtors. But Congress puts the measure over his veto. The act calls for the resumption of silver coinage at a rate between 2 and $4 million per month. Also in 1878, a U.S. Samoan treaty is signed in Washington, which gives the United States the right to establish a naval and coaling station in the port of Pago Pago, and it pledges American assistance if a third party interferes with Samoan chiefs. May 1878, House Democrats begin an investigation into the controversial presidential election of 1876, much to the chagrin of Hayes. 
February 1879, after political struggle between Hayes and Senator Conkling, the Senate approves Hayes' appointments for the New York Custom House. Although these failed to end inefficiency in the civil service system, the country largely supports Hayes' commitment to reform. March 1880. In a speech to Congress, Hayes continues to support a Central American canal to unite the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. And finally, November 1880, the United States and China sign a treaty which repeals a section of the 1868 Burlingame Treaty. The move gives the United States the power to regulate, limit, or suspend, but not completely prohibit Chinese immigration. Rutherford B. Hayes has also just blocked a bill that would set a limit, that Congress wanted this, that would set a limit of no more than 15 Chinese passengers on any ship. Hayes vetoes that, but then renegotiates the treaty with China. And in November 1880, James Garfield is elected president by a narrow margin, only 48.5%, but a comfortable majority of electoral votes, 214 to 155. There is no dispute of the 1880 election as narrow as it is. Garfield is a good friend of Rutherford B. Hayes and a fellow Ohioan. Although uh, Rutherford B. Hayes' presidency is mostly regarded in history textbooks because of the way that he got to be president, the disputed election, it's also important for the gold versus silver money debate, inflation versus deflation in terms of the currency. He's also important for the immigration debate. He's also important federal support of internal improvements. He's also important for the expansion of the United States into the Pacific, and he's also important for civil service reform. All of those things should be considered if we look at Rutherford B. Hayes in a greater sense than just that election. Thanks for listening, and thanks for subscribing to the Premium Podcast.